You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Cognitive therapy is a type of psychotherapy developed by psychiatrist Aaron T. Beck in the 1960s. Beck came to the conclusion that the way in which his clients perceived and interpreted and attributed meaning or cognition in their daily lives was the key to therapy. Cognitive therapy seeks to identify and change distorted or unrealistic ways of thinking and therefore influence emotion and behavior. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Judith Beck, Director of the Beck Institute for Cognitive Therapy and Research, Clinical Associate Professor of Psychology in Psychiatry at University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Beck is also the author of Cognitive Therapy, Basics and Beyond, the basic text used in teaching cognitive therapy. Welcome to the show, Dr. Beck. Thank you. I'd like you to start by telling our listeners a little bit about what cognitive therapy actually is. I know I said it in the intro, but most primary care physicians, I don't think, know the difference between regular psychotherapy, cognitive therapy, analysis. Could you help me out? Sure. Cognitive therapy is the most highly researched form of psychotherapy that there is in the world, and there have been over 400 outcome trials that show that it's effective for a whole range of both psychiatric disorders and also medical problems with psychological components. And about half of what we do in cognitive therapy is straightforward problem solving. What problems is going to occur for the patient in the coming week? So half of it is doing some problem solving and half of it is uh, teaching patients certain skills, especially skills about how to evaluate and respond to their dysfunctional thinking, to change their unhelpful behavior, and to um, regulate their emotions better. So how did how did you or your father come up with this idea? How was he trained, and then what did he do, kind of go off on a tangent? My father was a psychoanalyst. He went through the regular psychoanalytic training and uh, had patients on the couch. And he decided, he was really first and foremost a scientist, and he decided that in order for psychoanalysis to really have currency in the field of science, mm-hmm. to, to really be believed by other branches of medicine and the public at large that its concepts had to be demonstrated. So he developed a whole series of experiments that he was sure would show that the psychoanalytic ideas were accurate. And he specifically was working with depressed patients and looking at this idea that depression is really anger turned inward toward the self. And much to his surprise, he found out that actually his experiment showed the opposite of what he had predicted. Once he recognized that these ideas weren't borne out by research, he began to look for other explanations about depression. One of the things that he found was that a part of everyone's depression is negative thinking, particularly negative thinking about the self, the world, and other people. And he found that he could fairly quickly get people better by focusing on their negative ideas, helping them solve problems, get them back to behaving in a more functional way. I'm curious that obviously it works, but I'm wondering what happens to the resistance? What happens to the the, the motivating factor that these patients really have to stay angry? Obviously, you can talk them into being happy, but and they can they can become aware of it, but you're still never dealing with the the neurosis that caused them to be angry? Well, I don't think we can talk people into being happy. We can help them 
recognize what goals they themselves want to reach in life, and we can help them see situations more realistically. We certainly don't want to help them see situations in an overly positive way. I mean, we wouldn't be doing them any favor if we did that. Uh, cognitive therapy doesn't necessarily posit that there are these underlying uh, emotion or uh, underlying drives to uh, feel depressed or to feel angry or something like that. But what we would do with patients if we suspected that there was something like that going on is we would ask them, do they see um, any advantages to being angry? Do they see any advantages to being depressed? And what are the disadvantages of feeling that those uh, states? And how do we reconcile those two things? So you, you will address their motivating factors, that their benefits that they may be getting from being angry. Yes, but we don't always assume that there are benefits. Okay. And, and certainly when people are depressed, there are very, very few benefits to being depressed. Well, that, you know, forget, forget about depression, but let's say someone's in a, an unhappy marriage and they're choosing to stay in that marriage. They, for some reason, like to be unhappily married. And you could tell them, listen, tell yourself you're, you're happily married, everything's great, you're a good person, your spouse is a good person. Oh, we would never do that. <laughs> we don't help people think, uh, look at things in a positive way. We help people evaluate their thinking so that they can see things in a realistic way. You know, it makes me think of the character Stuart Smalley, who was played by Al Franken on Saturday Night Live many years ago, where he would look into a mirror and he would tell himself things. He would say, you know, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. So that's what I think of with cognitive behavioral therapy, that you're just telling people to stand in front of a mirror and, and say these nice positive things about themselves. And I, I just don't get how that works. No, absolutely not. What we're trying to do is to help people evaluate their thinking. So we might have someone who has an idea, um, I'm a complete failure as a person. And then we say, well, what's the evidence that you're a complete failure? Mm -hmm. What's the evidence on the other side that maybe you're not a complete failure? Is there another explanation for what's going on here? So we really want them to look at the evidence and draw conclusions that are reality-based. We find that when they give themselves positive affirmations, they, they may feel better for 30 seconds, if at all, but then it disappears. So what we really want is to have them see reality and to have their, this, the new ideas that they have really stick. Dr. Beck, you mentioned earlier that cognitive behavioral therapy has more outcome data than other fields of therapy. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Cognitive therapy has been shown to be effective for a whole range of psychiatric disorders from depression to uh, bipolar disorder in conjunction with medication, also for schizophrenia in conjunction with medication and treatment as usual, for uh, bulimia, for binge eating disorder, for substance abuse, for all kinds of anxiety disorders, OCD, PTSD, and so forth. And have there been any studies saying comparing cognitive behavioral therapy to regular talk therapy, or is that very difficult to set up a study like that? There have been a few studies that compare the two side by side. There have been probably more studies comparing cognitive therapy to medication. And who usually wins, or is it a tie? It depends on the disorder. For depression... Cognitive therapy seems to be about equally effective for both mild, moderate, and also for severe depression if you have very experienced cognitive therapists. If you have less experienced cognitive therapists, then medication seems to have an edge. For some severely depressed patients, the combination seems to be better than, than either one alone. But uh, certainly there are many patients who have been treated without medication very effectively. You mentioned that it depends on the therapist you have. And I'm wondering, how does a physician like myself in primary care find someone who is cognitively trained 
at a good institute and, and knows their stuff. There is an organization called the Academy of Cognitive Therapy. It's actually on the web, academyofct.org. This is an organization of which I'm past president, and we certify people as cognitive therapists. So mental health professionals have to have a certain amount of background training and experience, and then they have to submit a work sample to us, therapy tapes and case write-ups, so that we can actually see that they're doing cognitive therapy, and we have certain validated evaluation scales for which they have to pass a certain um, certain number. Let's take a garden variety condition such as bulimia. And I decide to send my patient to a cognitive behavioral therapist. How long will his or her therapy last? Will it be weeks, months, years? I know it's hard to say, but will it be shorter than analysis, obviously? For something like bulimia, many patients are treated in something like 12 to 20 sessions. That's pretty quick. We Usually weekly at first, that's right. And then we start to space out therapy as patients are learning the skills. But from the very beginning, every cognitive therapy patient has an emphasis on relapse prevention. So not only are we helping them get over the disorder, but we're teaching them the skills that they're going to use for their whole life to uh, hopefully stave off recurrence of the disorder. And there's been some, most of the research on relapse prevention has been done on depression, some on bipolar disorder. And it's shown that people treated with cognitive therapy have half the relapse rate as people treated with medication. Hmm. That's a pretty good uh, lack of recidivism. It is. What other things did cognitive behavioral therapy kind of borrow or embrace from psychoanalysis? Or did they reject everything? Have you, have you taken on have you taken advantage of transference, so to speak? There are many elements that are common to both. Certainly, the therapeutic alliance is incredibly important in any kind of psychotherapy. We see transference as a little bit different light. What we talk about is just the uh, patient's reaction to the therapist. Now, there are a lot of things that we do in cognitive therapy to try to develop a very good, strong relationship from the very beginning. So cognitive therapy is very collaborative. At every session, we ask patients, what problem or problems do you want my help in solving today? At the end of every session, we ask for feedback. What did you think of the session? Is there anything you thought I got wrong or I didn't understand? Is there anything you want to do differently next time? Uh, and you need to have the same good counseling skills in cognitive therapy as in any psychotherapy, being warm and empathic, having accurate understanding, genuine regard, and so forth. We also uh, talk about therapists' negative reactions to patients, which I think um, doesn't spring up a whole lot in cognitive therapy, but it certainly can, particularly with access to patients. Mm -hmm. And then we have therapists use the same kind of cognitive therapy skills on themselves to mm. develop reasonable expectations, for example, for their patients. So they're, they're using their own skills on their own countertransference. That's exactly right. I can usually identify a borderline personality disorder when I walk into the room and I immediately dislike them. That's kind of how I make the diagnosis. Right. So if you were a cognitive therapist, we right. have you write a coping card that says the patient is this way. You know, it's not the patient's fault that he or she is this way. This is why she's a patient. This is why she's coming to see me. And my expectations for this patient, you know, should be blank and blank. And my expectations for myself should be blank and blank. It sounds like every student in medical school should have that course because <laughs> because we do come across these patients every day that we immediately take a dislike to. And we're not providing them the best care unless we do some of these exercises, you're saying. And I think what helps is as we become more and more competent to help these patients, then it makes us less anxious, makes us feel a little less threatened, too. Uh, and, and also if we have the expectation that we probably will be able to help 
every patient to a certain degree, but certainly perhaps not every patient to the nth degree. I'd like to talk a little bit about Judith Beck for a minute. Sure. Um, you, you come from a field your father created. Uh, it reminds me of the, the Anna and Sigmund Freud story. <laughs> And I'm wondering, you know, what you are doing to kind of differentiate yourself, to carve out your own space in this world. Well, it's funny because I never felt like I had to carve out my own space. I started out in teaching, never thought I would go into psychology at all, but always loved kids. And I started out teaching kids with learning disabilities. And, and so one of the things that I've done in cognitive therapy is to use my background as a teacher uh, to, to a great degree. So a lot of what I spend my time doing is teaching other people how to do cognitive therapy. Dr. Beck, we're, we're almost about out of time. Is there anything else you'd like to say about cognitive behavioral therapy before we go? Just that I think it'd be important for physicians and the public to investigate cognitive therapy because there is such a large research base that supports its efficacy. Dr. Beck, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send some email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.